Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Charfus. I've just come back from a visit to London, and quite apart from the pleasure of being able to see family and friends and some amazingly good weather, it gave me a chance to meet someone I've long admired from afar. Online, he's known as One Dish for the Road. In real life... Hi, um, yeah, I'm Aaron Valance, um, and by day I work as a doctor in the NHS as a, as a child psychiatrist uh, in a community service. Um, but by night, or at least weekends and holidays, um, I sort of moonlight as a food writer. And I live in London, and I'm originally from Manchester, um, but very much, after taking a few years to get used to London life, very much embrace London. And I mean, I would have thought being a doctor in the NHS would be kind of a, a, a full-time occupation. So what got you into writing about food? Um, yes, good question. <laughs> and... Not not a straightforward answer, um, and sometimes I do sort of scratch my head at times and wonder how on earth I got to do food writing alongside my medical career. Uh, and I think that's not least because, you know, going back, you know, at school, you know, English wasn't a particularly good subject for me. I didn't really enjoy writing. Um, what I did enjoy, and I think... You know, it was you know, particularly formative for me then, and in many ways still now, is the, um, the evenings, the night times when my dad would read bedtime stories. And uh, these were really precious moments, which I really enjoyed. And we'd go through a whole series of just, you know, wonderful books, you know, Lord of the Rings, often several times, or Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea trilogy. I didn't necessarily enjoy writing or even reading that much. I really enjoyed stories, and I think that's kept with me for you know for all these years and yeah it wasn't it wasn't until many years later and there's a bit of a medical link because I was on my medical elective placement uh, in Tonga um, in the South Pacific and whilst there I would email back to you know family and friends you know just tales of what I was up to or my impressions of the work or life out in Tonga and I found I just really enjoyed writing and they seem to enjoy reading and then that spurred me on to try and write a book and at that point I'd you know soon after I'd qualified as a doctor um, and so writing a book <laughs> alongside you know 100 hour weeks on on the wards wasn't so conducive so it did take about two or three years to write the book and ultimately you know it wasn't published but that love of writing just you know I just completely grabbed me and um, find I just get a rush you know whenever I just sit down and you know would spend hours just loving loving the process um, and that was something you know which I think was within me a bit like a genie in a bottle or all ready to come out mm. many years later mm. and then around that time is you know I'd moved to London and discovered I just you know loved food loved eating and obviously London is such a diverse city and really enjoyed 
just experiencing all types of food from the sort of you know varied diaspora communities in in the city and would you know would then also read about food and restaurant reviews and um, and then I'd sort of discovered such things as food blogs and um, there was definitely like a penny drop moment when I was sitting in a restaurant in in South London and the light was sunshine was shining through the windows and I realized that firstly I just love love food and secondly I love writing and actually you know it's very it is very hard to write you know a whole book whilst working in the NHS but writing you know discreet blog post well that's something I thought you know maybe I can give that a go and then so my blog One Dish for the Road came about and I've just enjoyed writing you know it's been a real privilege to be able to continue to do it alongside the, the day job. I think I first came across your writing with one particular post, which was curry and knedler. Um I think most people are familiar with curry. Not not so sure about knedler. Can you can you just first of all tell me tell me what knedler are, and then and, and then we'll talk about the story. So knedler are uh, dumplings um, cooked with uh, matzo meal um, and traditionally schmaltz which is sort of chicken fat and they're very much in the Ashkenazi or the East European Jewish tradition uh, and it's something which growing up um, both my mum and my grandma would would make every Friday night it's um, particularly sort of tradition of the sort of Shabbat or the the, um, uh, the Jewish day of rest and to have you know your chicken soup uh, and your canadals. You know, they can still, you know, there's still quite a lot of variety in, in terms of how people prepare canadals. Um, my grandmas were always on the hefty side. You know, some canadals might bob about quite, not, you know, and that's often, you know, the, the, the light and airy canadal is seen as best. But not for me. I prefer those big, heavy dumplings. And they're the ones I grew up on, on and really enjoyed eating. So what have canadlach got to do with curry? Um, now that's quite a long story <laughs> so I can start at as, the beginning as briefly as you can because I know, I know there are lots of other stories I want to talk about yeah so um, I guess in terms of, of this, you know, the story of, Kened- of Curry and Kenedlach which I um, co-wrote with Shana Zarsan who is now you know, a phenomenal um, published writer and in some ways it's actually sort of two stories the first story is how I came to meet Shana's and then the second story is actually the back history of our of our families. So I, it was a time when I'd you know I started dabbling a bit with social media, particularly Twitter, and then um, just out of the blue, I got a message from from a Twitter friend saying, "Oh, there's a supper club, you know, um, being hosted quite close by, and would I like to come?" And and so I was I was booking my tickets for the supper club, and it was it was a Bengali supper club called Tiger Kitchen. Um, and I was just messaging the the chef uh, of the supper club, saying, "Oh, um, I'd I, you know really keen to come. It just sounds you know it sounds fantastic. And I've never you know up till they've even been to a supper club before. But um, I you know I do work you know as a doctor, you know, and uh, I, I'm not quite sure sometimes what time I can get from you know from a busy clinic. And then Sharnaz came back saying, "Oh." Your doctor and your surname is, is Valence. This is a bit of a um, this is a bit of a stab in the dark. But do you have any connection with a with a doctor Valence um, who worked in Manchester in the nineteen seventies? 
and it's a bit of a thunderbolt from the blue to be honest because um yeah it's not obviously not something i've been ex- expecting at all or particularly you know having any connection with my grandpa who was you know um, a very traditional orthodox jewish um man who you know was very much you know uh, dedicated to you know the, the jewish community he was like the president of our synagogue having some message referencing him in relation to a bengali supper club um, i couldn't quite piece together the connection um, and then um, it, it transpires that Sharnas had heard his name, even though she's never met him. He'd, you know, um, her family, uh, she was, you know, were from Leeds, but uh, originally she was born in Leeds. But um, her, her mother and her family were in Manchester. And it turns out my, my grandpa, my grandpa Reuben, um, was their family GP. And... You know, that in itself is not a reason why Shana should know that because I don't think I'd necessarily remember the the name of my, of my parents' GP when they were growing up. But the reason why it was known in her family was because her family over the the decades had had talked about him as as a, um, a you know a very important part of their lives, and not least there's a you know really tragic episode in in the family history where. Um, Sharnaz's uncle was was uh, brutally murdered uh, in, a, in a racist attack in a school playground, even when he was, he was only thirteen at the time. And you know, my grandpa, uh, was, you know, as, as their family doctor, um, did what what he can to try and, and help provide that support for the family. And um, one of one of the things that he a particular project, which I remember him talking about when I was growing up, was sending young people and families who were going through tough times or were living in areas of deprivation, but he would set up a project for them to have holidays by the seaside. And it turns out that um, Sharnaz's um, uh, um, mum and some of her family you know, actually went on, on holiday that was arranged by, by my grandpa. And, and then, you know, even in the years after, you know, he, he got to the family. He's someone as a GP would often do home visits. So again, he... Uh, and I think even when the family moved from... Manchester to Leeds, where Genshanas was born, um, he was still sort of talked about over the years, and that's how Sean. It came to Sharnas's mind when she saw a, you know, my surname, which is, you know, I guess, not the most common of of surnames, and then obviously I was a doctor, and she just, you know, asked the question, and <laughs> so it, it is an astonishing kind of oh, um, coincidence. Is not not the right word, but but it brought you, the two of you together in a really interesting way. Uh, definitely. I think both of us were quite gobsmacked when we made that connection through Twitter messaging. Um, and then it was only like the next day that, you know, I'd went, I'd, I then went to her supper club that she hosted and I was just, you know, incredibly touched you know, she, uh, that, that she... Uh, in, when introducing herself, actually introduced the story as well, because I think obviously to her, uh, it, was, it was quite a, you know quite an incredible situation too. Uh, and I think it's just there's so many different levels to it because I think there's the coincidence, but also almost the, the surprise element. You know, these are you know I guess the connections of two families from very different communities, and uh, but just how they had that connection that neither this or you know I. I didn't I, I mean the other aspect too is I, it was a story I didn't know about at all you know yeah. um, so it was just incredibly moving for me to hear this story of, of my grandpa you know who's you no know, uh, you know he he died over 20 years ago um, 
but you know he was such a an important person in my life growing up and 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 in in all the families and to hear a story from from you know almost from the past like this was just so touching but it's also interesting that that your family and her family shared so much in the way of immigration coming to coming to england bizarre stories of being shipwrecked just if I hadn't read it and if I didn't know you, I'd think, you couldn't make this up. <laughs> no, it's, it is, you know, I think... So even though the communities you know, are very different communities, you know, there's so many aspects that they share in terms of, you know, experience of, of migration, of hardships, of resilience, of, you know, of really endeavouring to do the best, you know, for, for the children... Um, and obviously, you know, how much food is, is also part, part of the story as well. So, It's interesting, though, that, um, I mean, that story could easily, could easily have been fiction. But in a lot of your other writing, you kind of, it's a two for one. You, you, do, you do fiction to introduce a restaurant review, which I don't think I've ever come across before. How did you get into that? I think originally, in the first sort of few pieces, I, I just thought I'd just play around a little bit by introducing a bit of dialogue or narrative just to in- inject a bit of, of humour into proceedings. For instance, there's an early piece where I just imagined a piece of dialogue between two Victorian diners mulling around what, what the scores on the door's hygiene rating system is about. And then in terms of then using more, more extended fiction, um, I think that first arose... Um, when I went to a restaurant in Tooting in South London and the restaurant um, was called Plot uh, and that referenced, I think, a real commitment to local sourcing of food, to produce some allotments. But, um, yeah, the word plot just sort of, you know, I just found, you know, it just amused me and I thought, oh, it'd be quite fun to play on the word a bit and maybe let's make the restaurant review a piece of fiction, effectively. I did find I really enjoyed writing it. And then I think since then, I've sort of dabbled in, in the use of fiction and or narratives uh, since. Sometimes it's in conjuring up family stories and family memories. But then other times I've realised I can also use that to also relate other people's stories. So, for instance, I'm a chef owner of a restaurant called Nandine in, in Camberwell. Um, in South London, um, and um, I was very, you know, really honoured to um, the chef uh, Parry Baban was able to give some of her time to be interviewed around her family story, and I decided to write the piece not as a, a sort of a straight interview or even a re- even just a, a description of the story. I, th- I thought I'd write it as a piece of creative writing from the perspective of the recipe, um, which is a Kurdish recipe called um, Halka Dushor, or Eggy Dates. It's a piece of fiction about how the recipe migrated from, from Kurdish Iraq to Camberwell, South London. But of course, you know, it's as much as a, as a, as a way in or a gateway yeah. to actually tell Parry's story. Um, and a story of her escaping from war and persecution and her family migration story to, to London. So again, it's a real privilege to be able to, you know, to, to tell someone else's story. And I think fiction can play a really important role in really highlighting stories or themes. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, telling the story of a recipe, you've also told the story of a shipping container um, that ends up as a restaurant. Um, it, it's a it's an interesting approach to kind of giving life to these to these stories. Yeah, yeah, and I think again, I go back to you know, as a you know, twelve-year-old sitting in the back of English and and really sort of struggling, you know, writing my essays, and I can think, how on earth have I got to a point where I'm I'm, I'm doing creative writing? I'm I'm intrigued because I mean, it does sound to me as if writing about food is for you a, a kind of um, relaxation almost. I mean, it's hard work, but it's relaxation from the day job. And I just wonder whether in the day job, especially over over the pandemic. Have you seen food as something that helps people overcome difficulties and anxieties, or does it create more anxiety for people? Oh, I think that's a really, yeah, really interesting question. And I think one of the things I think we have learnt or starting to learn through, through research about the pandemic is just that no two stories are the same if everyone you know it's how, how the the impact you know has been really different for for everyone and a lot may depend on circumstances of course before the pandemic other you know whilst people have had to adapt to the pandemic or the the hardship or the challenges caused by the pandemic um and for some people, you know, food is part of that story, um, for better or worse, you know. On the more challenging side of things, you know, that the rates of eating disorders have, have really rocketed through the pandemic. Uh, I know this sort of locally where I work, but it's also borne out, you know, nationally too by, by research. Um, and again, that's quite a complex thing in terms of why that's the case. There's again, various aspects to it, but it probably is about the... You know the, the uncertainty that people have faced, uh, and of course, food is one aspect of life which people can control, and and also is you know a reflection of their own inner turmoil uh, as well when it comes to yeah eating disorders. So I think you know there, there's been those, that challenging side, but then on the other side, you know, people have adapted by finding new pastimes by new activities and we know you know again through research and just you know working on the ground how important activity is because of course with lockdown so people were you know in some ways trapped in their homes and yet we know activity structure routine it's really important for emotional well-being and so people turning to food and discovering that you know they enjoy cooking or baking you know, obviously, you know, sourdough became a bit of a thing, didn't it, over, over the pandemic. But whatever it was, you know, it, you know, it, it, you know, I think for many people, it was one aspect of solace and support and connection, and and I think it had a positive effect. And I know also there have been a, you know, a few of my own you know, young people who come to clinic who also discovered baking and when lockdown started to ease, to, to ease be able to share their food as well um, so that sharing and giving also became another important you know, aspect that, that gave meaning as well yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think you know food is such an integral part of our lives and our relationship with food you know, can be very positive or, or you know, can be negative and I think yeah. the pandemic can sometimes exacerbate both those sides of things so yeah. i think that's really crucial that it can be 
both a source of solace and a source of anxiety. And I don't know how you... Do you think that's a sort of individual difference, that for some people it'll always be a solace and for some people it'll always be anxiety-inducing? Um you know, for those cases where things were inflated one way or the other during the pandemic, it probably was the case that there was that predisposition there beforehand. And in, I guess at a time of extreme of challenge, it just exacerbated it or people just adapted in whatever way that, that, that um, they managed during, during that time. Yeah. One of, one of the things I like about your writing is you seem to find out-of-the-way places of quite different cultures. You said how much you enjoy the diversity of cultures in London. Um, how do you decide which of several, I don't know, you know, West African, Afghani, uh, Caribbean, how do you decide which ones are worth your going into and actually eating in? I, I do enjoy doing a lot of reading. <laughs> Of, of you know food articles, um, especially in the past you know few years, there's been a real, real burgeoning of food literature, particularly with a, you know a, a London-centric focus. I think through through reading, um, you know I've been you know, fortunate to have have them as sources of information. Actually, that food I've never tried before, and I'd be really interested in, in giving in giving that a go or there's a particular atmosphere or story behind a place and um so it could, could be for all sorts of reasons um you mentioned that you very early on you wrote a book that was unpublished you've got I mean, what where, where's where's your food writing going now that yeah it's something i do think about because um i i, I st- several years on and that love for writing hasn't diminished in in any way at all um at the same time i do love i do love you know working in the nhs it means a lot to me to be able to to do that and you know being able to you know support and and help families you know when it comes to mental health is something that is also really meaningful for me and also life is busy as well in terms of you know i've got my two two boys and and helping and supporting them and you know being a parent so trying to put everything you know together i i'd love to be able to do more you know have more time to do food writing i am not quite sure quite how to go about that in terms of that gets the right balance between that and, and the nhs work i do always worry that suddenly i i I, the ideas will dry up or I'll lose interest um, and that's always a, you know, a sort of a, a fear I have but I think just while I'm enjoying it I'll just keep going I wonder whether you think I mean hospital food notoriously gets a very bad reputation certainly in England hospital food isn't, is, is not something you want to go out of your way to eat um, but I wonder whether you think enough is done about not about food as medicine but about food in well-being do, do we take enough notice of the role that food plays in people's well-being yes and no i think um traditionally we haven't particularly certainly you know um i guess british tradition you know, in the past few decades i think has just been seeing food as sustenance <laughs> rather than something to be enjoyed or celebrated or something which you know is connected with well-being I don't know, it might be that British tradition of stiff upper lip, you know, you don't 
think about well-being so much as a thing you know i guess i'm going back decades and making sweeping generalizations but i think that's probably been part you know that, that connection hasn't really been part of the british food culture um, but i think that's starting to turn in, in 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 the past few years you know there there has been more attention into into nutrition again on, on lots of different levels you know whether it's the issue of obesity uh, and that side of things or on the other side you know, you know De- you know, food poverty and deprivation, and you know, you know the, the significant proportion of, of you know children which are malnourished. You know, so it is getting more prominence. I remember, you know, as as a medical student going back in in the nineties, nutrition didn't really have much of an impact on um, on the curriculum. I mean, to be fair, neither did child mental health. I think we did probably one day of it in 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 five or six years of medical training. But likewise, nutrition was you know such a, a small part of of the curriculum. But in the past few years, there's been more campaigning to whether it's trying to increase nutrition on medical school curricula or just talking about it on a public health level. And obviously there was, it was Jamie Oliver, you know, had that initiative a few years back of improving nutrition of hospital food and school food. And even recently, um, Saliha, uh, who's a MasterChef winner going back a few years and is also a gastroenterologist. And she's currently got um, a campaign of giving doctors proper nutrition and uh, when they're doing night shifts on with the NHS. So I think that connection is gaining more traction, but I think it's still quite a long way to go. Dr. Aaron Valance, a.k.a. One Dish for the Road. Search for that with numbers for one and four, and you'll turn up links to all of Aaron's online activity. But to make it easier, I'll put links in the show notes, along with pointers to some of the things we talked about. As usual, you can find all that at eatthispodcast.com. And that's also the place to look through the archives, leave a comment, etc., etc. The most important of those etc.s is possibly to consider supporting the podcast with a donation at eatthispodcast.com slash supporters. Although a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts is also a great help in putting the show in front of new listeners. Either way, thanks. And supporters do also help to make transcripts available, usually within a few days of the episode going out. I hope you enjoyed listening to Aaron Valance as much as I enjoyed talking to him. But for now, that's all. Till the next episode of Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.